0: Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together. We come to chapter six and actually chapter seven as well this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage. And always nice to hear the Word of God, but then doubly blessed to be able to read it and uh, hear it as well. It uh, causes it to take a deeper place in our lives. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And, when they were not, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him uh, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said... This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place that is the temple and the law, the law of Moses. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as, uh, saw his face as the face of an angel... And then the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen then said, Brethren and fathers, listen. And so he begins in chapter 7, the longest uh, sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Let's pick things up in verse 51, the conclusion of his sermon. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uh, It's a stiff application, I'd say, wouldn't you? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the Just One, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Father, as always, thank you for the priceless privilege of being able to hold this book in our hands and the incredible capacity the gift Lord of your Holy Spirit that then gives us who gives us the ability to then understand your truth and your ways and this revelation concerning yourself and your plan for our lives and Lord as we stand before you this morning we freshly surrender to your Holy Spirit And we acknowledge, Lord, that there is something bound up within these verses that is important to our relationship with you and our walk with you and your plan for our lives. And we simply ask that you would speak that to us this morning. Give us the ability to recognize it and to receive it, Lord. For your glory, Lord, and for our good, and for the good of all those, Lord, that we come into contact with both today and the remaining days of our pilgrimage. And we ask these things and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, we are reintroduced and introduced in earnest to a very, very remarkable brother by the name of Stephen. Stephen. It's something to read the Bible and read the various characters within the Bible, but to realize and just take a moment this morning to stop and to realize that one day we will see this precious brother in heaven. We will come to know him in a way that we don't know any other person in this life just for the sheer amount of time that we'll have to get to know one another there. And I'm guessing that it's going to take us two or three weeks uh, in order to do his life and his death, as it's recorded here, any kind of justice, and uh, as well as doing any kind of justice to the truths that are bound up in his life and in his death and what they're intended to do in terms of instruction for us. As we examined last week, within the early church, there arose a complaint among the Hellenistic Jews concerning the distribution, the daily distribution of resources to their uh, widows and, and concerning the fairness of that distribution. And they felt that their widows were being neglected and in order to stay faithful to the priorities of prayer and the ministry of the Word of God, the apostles requested that seven men would be brought forth to oversee this ministry. And what was required of those seven men was that they would be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. And Stephen was one of those men, one of those early deacons that was chosen, and He was very, very faithful to his role as a deacon, but we see also in this passage now that he didn't merely have a heart, as the old saying goes, for the pantry, but he also had a heart for the pulpit. He had a great concern to meet the physical needs of God's people, but he also had a concern that the whole world would hear the gospel and be taught concerning Jesus and be saved and enter into a relationship with Him. And thus God expanded Stephen's ministry by confirming his preaching, confirming his teaching, we're told in verse 6, with great signs and wonders. And it's a significant thing that's said of him there because up to this point in the record, the only signs and wonders that have been demonstrated has been as a witness and a testimony to the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. And now God is doing this, pouring His favor out upon this deacon. Now you put yourself excuse me, in the place of the Jewish religious leaders of the day who were opposed to Christianity. And here you have thousands and thousands who are getting saved as they trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins because of the preaching of the apostles, every time they threaten the apostles, the apostles only become more bolder than they were before. What do you do with people like that that only become more bolder each time you <clears throat> excuse me, you threaten them? And then the thousands of Christians start to multiply until we 're told that all of Jerusalem is filled with the gospel. The gospel then spills out into the surrounding towns and, and villages where multitudes more are saved there. They try to arrest the apostles. They can't keep them in prison. And every time the religious leaders turn around, these apostles are doing more miracles, and in doing so, leaving this long trail of changed lives as a testimony to the fact that Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins as they preached, but that He is risen and alive today and at work in people's lives. And now, as if it couldn't get any worse for them, now you have mere deacons doing signs and wonders as well. I'll tell you, it's not easy being the devil. Sometimes we think it's not easy to be a Christian, and it isn't. But it's far less easy to be the devil and the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, any time you have that kind of effectiveness for God, whether it's in an individual or whether it's in a church, that kind of effectiveness for the kingdom of God is never going to go unopposed by the devil or those who are aligned with him. And that opposition against Stephen is described in chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. And it isn't unlikely, as it's described there, that Stephen began, after being saved and operating as a deacon, that he began to visit the various synagogues in the city of Jerusalem, and in those synagogues declaring Jesus to be the promised Messiah and then further proving it from the Scriptures. It's estimated that there were between four and five hundred synagogues in Jerusalem alone, at this point in time in history. And synagogues were essentially what we would call a church service. The services were always very, very simple. There would be the reading of the Scriptures, a short lesson or devotional teaching from the Scriptures, and then prayer. And so the synagogues were a place for people to come together with their questions about the Word of God and to be able to discuss those questions concerning uh, the Jewish law and the prophets. There's mention made in verse 9 of the synagogue of the freedmen, and they are mentioned predominantly among four other synagogues that are mentioned in Jerusalem at that time as well. And the synagogue of the freedmen was apparently made up of Jews who had formerly been slaves in the Roman Empire. Remember, uh, slaves were often, became slaves in the Roman Empire because a particular population of males or females were in a part of the world Rome then conquered, and in conquering maybe Syria or some other part of the world, they would gather up all of the people, take them as slaves to Rome, sell them there, and then uh, they'd become slaves to various households and so forth. And somehow there was this group of men and women significant enough in number who had then ultimately secured their freedom from being slaves, made their way to Jerusalem and decided to establish a synagogue where that kind of person would be uh, most comfortable in uh, coming. The other four synagogues are mentioned, probably uh, made up of Jews also living in Jerusalem. They had originally come from Cyrene, which is a city in Africa, Alexandria, very famous Egyptian uh, seaport in northern Egypt, Cilicia, which was a province of Asia Minor, and then Asia, which was a province of uh, Asia Minor as well. And they would set up all of these various kinds of synagogues within town. Sometimes people look and they say, Why are there so many churches within a town? Well, there can be a lot of reasons for that, and I'm not going to try and explain it. But within Jerusalem, in the synagogues, very often, uh, as we know from the Old Testament, Jewish men and their families would come, but the men especially were compelled to come three times a year uh, to Jerusalem to uh, celebrate the feast of. A uh, Passover and then Pentecost and also the Feast of Tabernacles. So they would come from Cilicia, they would come from Alexandria, they would come from other parts of the Roman Empire and in coming to Jerusalem now to celebrate God in those places, if they would come from a particular region, they would meet in a particular synagogue. It would be like a great family gathering, everybody would know each other everybody would be familiar with a part of the world that they came from and what it meant to be a Jew in that part of the world and to follow God in that part of the world and so these synagogues existed within the city and existed throughout the year but you know were bulging at the seams during the times of the great feasts it's also very possible that this these disputes between Stephen and the Jews from these various synagogues occurred on the streets of Jerusalem themselves. In the course of Stephen preaching the gospel, maybe some open-air preaching or some street witnessing that he was doubtless doing, and then a group of religious Jews from the synagogue would be walking by. They'd stop to listen to what this teacher was saying. Stephen was teaching and preaching, and then they would begin to dispute with Stephen concerning what he was testifying to the people concerning Jesus. And anyone who's ever done any kind of street witnessing at all recognizes that this is, uh, goes on a fair amount of the time. You start preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel with an individual, and then it isn't long, depending on the environment, where other people will then come alongside, where they don't engage necessarily in the conversation, where they want to be close enough to listen What is this person who is obviously talking about something religious uh, saying? And then very often a person will listen from a distance and then they will begin to argue with you about what it is that you are saying uh, to uh, this person. Most frustrating when it's another Christian who does that. But unfortunately that kind of thing happens. Now notice we're told in verse 9 that they disputed with Stephen. And the word disputed means to argue, to debate, to discuss. And so it's very clear that Stephen was preaching something concerning Jesus that these Jews of these synagogues did not agree with. It's important to understand who these disputers were that are listed there. These were the theological brainiacs of their day. Uh, It was from uh, Alexandria that the Septuagint was born, from the Jews of Alexandria, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I mean, this was a significant colony of Jews there. So these guys are the theological nerds of their day, and I say it affectionately. Uh, Alexandria there in Egypt, one of the chief sites of learning and education, religious or otherwise, in the ancient world, had a very large Jewish population, and then they, when they would make that short trip then to Jerusalem for the pilgrimages, this would be the synagogue that they would attend along with the prominent Jews from the entire Mediterranean re- region. These Jews were the smartest, most educated Jewish theologians in the entire world outside of Israel. And here they are, they come up with all of their great significance, all of their learning, and they come up against a mere deacon. And if you were to look at it and be a betting man, you would think to yourself, we're dead. Uh, you know, Stephen is going to fold up and, uh, and, and, you know, succumb and, and get clobbered by these guys. But it doesn't happen because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he knew the Bible, and he was using the Bible to prove Jesus as the Messiah. But notice the result of their discussions. In verse 10, they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. In other words, that's the Holy Spirit's way of saying that Stephen got the best of them in every single one of these theological discussions They couldn't find a fault in what it was that he was saying. And you can only imagine how hard it was for that kind of man to have that happen to them and what I wouldn't give for a set of DVDs of those discussions that went on between Stephen and these Jewish theologians. Now, one of the fascinating things about all of this, and sometimes as you talk about these different things, it can seem tedious sometimes, to listen to, but it isn't. It's sometimes the fine details that come out in a passage like this that then cause the entire rest of the Bible to click into place and to then other, understand other significant people within the Bible in a way that we would never otherwise be able to. And one of the most one of the fascinating things about all of this is the very specific mention of the fact that among the disputers, verse 9, were those who were from Cilicia. And Cilicia was the region of a city called Tarsus, which was the home of a person named Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. And there can be hardly any doubt that Saul, who ultimately became Paul, had partaken in all of these discussions, that he had taken his theological swings at this deacon Stephen and had been openly bested by Stephen. And here you have this great theological mind of Paul considered to be not only one of the greatest minds in the history of the church, but one of the greatest... Minds, even in the estimation of secular people, one of the greatest minds in human history. And here he is, he takes his swings, theologically speaking, at at Stephen, and he has no more success than anyone else. And we know that he was present in all of this because in a matter of minutes, Saul will find himself at the site of Stephen's death, holding the robes. Uh, of all of his peers, while they laid them aside and put them in a pile to free themselves up so they could throw the stones with which they were going to put Stephen to death with a little more uh, freedom and a little more uh, fury in order to take the life out of Stephen's body. And I'll tell you, Paul never forgot this moment that's recorded in these passages in in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Paul would later write, and and record his the cry as the holy spirit would record it the apostle paul's cry out to the lord concerning this chapter in his life when in acts chapter 22 the lord uh, paul declared rather and when the blood of your martyr stephen was shed i also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him you can imagine what that those words meant from his heart now born again by the Holy Spirit and realized that he played a part in the death of the first martyr in the history of the Christian church and I'll tell you make no mistake about the fact that this represented a turning point in Saul's life though it would take some time to see it and I'm convinced that two great things happened in Paul's life as a result of his exposure to Stephen Number one, Stephen planted an understanding of the Scriptures in Paul's mind concerning Jesus as the Messiah that Paul, with this great, churning, exhaustive, legal mind, could never shake and he could never find a flaw in it. But like many who've given their whole life to something, some religious something, only to find out somewhere along the line that what they've given their life to is wrong, it would take Saul some time to be able to face that truth. But face it, he would one day on the road to Damascus. And I think the second thing that Saul or Paul had happen in, in his heart and in his life, in his contact with Stephen, is that he could never forget the peace that Stephen possessed in the midst of so cruel and so violent a death as Paul had participated in. But notice that when they couldn't get the best of Stephen in an honest, open discussion of the Scriptures, they then resorted to other things in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6. They began a campaign of false accusations. They then began to charge him with unfounded charges of blasphemy. And the whole idea is they knew all of it was false, but the idea of working up a religious crowd into a frenzy among the people there in order to then grab Stephen and take him uh, to be tried for blasphemy before the Sanhedrin. And in the passage, all of this is accomplished and they seized Stephen, brought him to be tried before the council, the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was a religious trial. And the accusations that are made against Stephen are twofold. The accusation, first accusation against him was that his teaching attacked the temple, and the second one was that his teaching attacked the law. And so here they are opposing the gospel, opposing Stephen's teaching, Concerning Jesus as the Messiah on the grounds that it threatened the temple and the law of Moses. But then notice Stephen in verse 15, Stephen's physical response to all of this. The Bible tells us as all of this is going on, he sat there with the face of an angel. You picture yourself, just take a moment, a little bit of effort to put yourself in the middle of that courtroom, in the middle of that room, and picture it for yourself. Here he is being unfairly arrested. He's being hit with a wall of slander and lies, one after the other. You feel the religious frenzy, the venom of the religious leaders in that room, and there is no frenzy like a religious. Frenzy and the hostility that's building within the room, and the energy of all of it. And you see their faces all contorted, and then the clenched fists that are being waved through the air as punctuation marks for what it is that they're charging him with. And then everyone, it seems, at a moment in time. All of the, you know, big hubbub dies down and then everyone's attention seems to fall upon Stephen all at once in verse 15. And as they steadfastly looked at him, they stared at him, they fixed their eyes upon him and him alone. He is the lone object of attention at this moment in the synagogue. And as they look to see now what is the reaction of the defendant to all of this. And surely the Sanhedrin had been used to a lot of reactions to charges like that in their presence through all of the years. And the most common reaction would be fear. What are these people going to do with me? What is this religious judges going to uh, charge me with and accuse me of and, and uh, convict me of? So often they were used... To someone standing before them being intimidated by the entire scene and fumbling for words and something to say in some kind of a self-defense or all of the blood would go out of their face and they're as white as a sheet and unable to say anything. And what did they see in Stephen? His face was as the face of an angel. I'd love a picture of that. Rembrandt is known as the master of light, and so he was. What a painter he was. And I think it takes someone like him to capture it. Unfortunately, he captured many Bible scenes in his paintings, but not this one. With the different translations concerning the face of Stephen, New Living Translation, his face became as bright as the angels. Moffat translates it, his face shone like the face of an angel. In other words, he is the picture of peace in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of all of this unholy emotion and all of the slander and all of the false accusation. And then the priest in chapter 7, verse 1, raises a question and brings it there to Stephen and says to him, Are these things so? And in doing so, he's allowing Stephen now to make a defense against the charges that have been laid against him. And then with the permission of the court, Stephen began a sermon. As I said, it's the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts in which he proceed proceeded to then call four witnesses from biblical history in order to testify on his behalf in disproving their accusation. And he calls Abraham to the witness stand and Joseph and Moses and Solomon to the witness stand they had called all of their false witnesses to bring forth these false accusations. He calls witnesses from the very pages of the Holy Scriptures. And I won't read the sermon in its entirety. I'd love to be able to do that, but we would be here till dinner. And so I'll leave it to you to read later on, on your own. But I'll give you an ap- encapsulation of the argument that he is making. And Stephen... In his defense, he began it by calling Abraham as his first witness, the father of the nation of Israel, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7. And the single great fact that Stephen drove home from the life of Father Abraham was that God had always required faith as a basis for relationship with him always required faith in order to enter into the life that he has for mankind. And Abraham, he says, heard God's command to leave his old life in order to enter into the new life that God had for him. And Abraham believed God's command. He obeyed God's command. And the very existence of the Jewish people in human history was as a result of Abraham's faith. The entire nation of Israel had been birthed in faith. They had moved forward in their remarkable history with God in faith. And now they're not wanting to walk by faith in God anymore. And Abraham had been willing to leave all of the comfort of Ur of the Chaldees, and then later leave all of the comfort and all of the luxury of Haran, places of tremendous prosperity and comfort for Abraham and for his family. And he did so because a relationship with the true and the living God was to be found elsewhere. And Abraham was willing to let go of everything in order to be a part of what God was doing next And these Jewish contemporaries of Stephen were not willing to do what Abraham had been willing to do. And Stephen was driving home the point that in order to be like Abraham, to be something great spiritually, they too needed to hear God and to believe God and then to obey God concerning receiving Jesus as their promised messiah, and that it wouldn 't be easy they would not need to leave they, they would rather need to leave the comfort zone that they were used to, but it was the only way for them to be a part of what God was going to do next not only in their history, but in the history of the entire world. And just as Father Abraham had, in the words of verse 3, get out of where, where he was in order to experience God's plan for his life, just as Father Abraham had to write the word from over his old life in order to obey God's come to, as it's found in the passage, in order to experience God's next plan for his life, they needed to do the same thing. And in Abraham, God had created a new people in human history, just as he was now endeavoring to do through his son, Jesus. And Stephen was saying, what the Lord is doing through his son, through the Lord Jesus, is not unprecedented in our history. He is merely doing what he had long ago done through Father Abraham. And then essentially Stephen declared, Thank you, Mr. Abraham. You may now leave the witness stand. The defense now wishes to call as our next witness, Joseph, from the book of Genesis. And so he begins to speak of Joseph in verses 9 through 16. And the great point that Stephen brings forth from the life of Joseph is that the patriarchs, the Jewish people, the leaders of God's people, that they had this long, long, long history of rejecting God's deliverers and His saviors. And the Jewish religious leaders, they boasted of their patriarchs as if if the patriarchs had always been right in their spiritual understandings and their understanding of God and in their decisions, and as if they had never been wrong. But Stephen tells them that they had been consistently wrong, consistently guilty of rejecting God's choices And concerning Joseph, Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. And God had chosen Joseph in order to rule over the other 11 brothers as he had revealed in multiple visions to Joseph. And he was called to ultimately become the savior of the Jewish people in a a physical sense as occurred in the seven-year famine that occurred in Egypt and the surrounding region that crushed that entire part of the world. And indeed, God used Joseph not only to save his family and the Jewish people, but the entire world surrounding Egypt. But the 11 brothers rejected Joseph from being over them. And what fascinated Stephen in his sermon here was their motive for doing so. Because he brought out in verse 9 that the 11 brothers had rejected Joseph not for good reason, but out of envy. Just as the Jewish leader Stephen was speaking to had done to Jesus, and they knew it, and everyone knew it, even Pilate knew, as Matthew records in his gospel, that they had delivered up Jesus because of envy and for not any kind of a righteous cause. It's also interesting that the eleven brothers did not recognize Joseph the first time that they came to him in Egypt for food. It wasn't until the second time that they recognized Him and then accepted Him and the position that God had called him to. And so it will be concerning Jesus and the Jews of this world by and large. They do not recognize Him for who He is as a result of His first coming, but they will at His second coming. As Zechariah brought forth, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him, that is, Jesus, as one who grieves for a uh, firstborn. And again, Stephen reminded them that they had this long established history of rejecting God's deliverers and his saviors, and that their rejection of Jesus would not adversely affect his exaltation any more than their father's rejection of Joseph adversely affected his exaltation. And then Stephen dismissed Joseph as his witness. Thank you, Mr. Joseph. You may now leave the witness stand, and the defense now wishes to call our third witness from the books of uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and specifically related to his life, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we call to the witness stand Moses. And from the life of Moses, verses 17 to 43, whose law they claim to be zealous for, Stephen reminded them that at Moses' first attempt to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt, that they had rejected him, That like Jesus, Moses had come unto his own and his own had received him not. And he brings that out in verses 27 and 28. And again, they had this very selective view of their history. They had a very long history of doing to others uh, that God had sent to save and to deliver them what they were also now doing to Jesus, rejecting them as they had done both to Joseph and to Moses. And from the life of Moses, he reminded them that Moses himself had prophesied to them of a prophet a Messiah that God would send to them, who when He came, verse 37, they were to give earnest heed to what He had to say. Moses told the Jewish people that He was not the be-all and the end-all of Jewish history, that He was not the final voice of God to the Jewish people, but that the coming Messiah would be that. And so Stephen is saying that concerning their accusation in preaching Jesus that somehow he was diminishing Moses or the law of Moses, Stephen answered that he was merely doing what Moses had commanded of the coming Messiah, Him you shall hear. In other words, it wasn't Stephen who wasn't taking Moses seriously. They were the ones who were not listening to Moses. And then with that, Stephen says, Thank you, Mr. Moses. You may now leave the witness stand. And the defense now calls our final witness, King Solomon, the son of David. And in speaking of Solomon, Stephen in uh, in verses 44 to 50 is addressing their accusation that in preaching Jesus, that in some way and somehow it is to speak blasphemous words against the temple. And in doing so, <clears throat> they might have been reminded of the fact that even Solomon and de- dedicating the first temple and first kings warned the Jewish people not to turn the temple into an idol or to make it an object of their worship rather than God. And uh, uh, as was declared in 1 Kings, but will God indeed dwell, as Solomon said, on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And Stephen quoted God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in verses 49 and 50 on this very same issue. You might notice, heaven is my throne, God declared through Isaiah, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And here you have God declaring that the temple is not the big thing in his eyes. It never was, but that he was and is the big thing, and a relationship with him is all that really matters. And I'll tell you, I don't think that it was lost on Stephen's audience. That the first three men that he mentioned in his defense, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, three of the greatest figures, not only in Jewish history, but three of the greatest figures in all of human history, that not one of them had a relationship with God based upon the temple Each one of them had a relationship with God without a temple. Abraham and Joseph and Moses had a relationship with God, but no temple. Stephen's audience had a temple, but they had no relationship with God. And with that, Stephen then concluded his defense against their charges made against him. And he says, in essence, thank you, King Solomon. You may now leave the witness stand. The defense now... wishes to enter into its closing remarks. And so he does, beginning in verse 51, and he declared his audience to be stiff-necked, that is, stubborn and proud and rebellious, and not only unwilling to bow their neck or bow any part of their body to their fellow man in the slightest hint of humility, but unwilling to do it before God himself. He declared in first, verse 51 them to be uncircumcised in heart and in their ears. They had a complete inability, carnal as they were, though religious, to be able to inter- internalize anything spiritual In verse 52, he reminded them that their fathers had persecuted every prophet that God had ever sent to speak to them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, every single one of them. And then in verse 52, he declared to them that they had done worse than anyone else had done in their history, in that they had betrayed and murdered the Messiah of whom all of the prophets had prophesied. They had crucified and murdered Jesus. And then he declared, you have this law that you defend and you claim to revere, but you don't obey it. And so he concluded his defense. And you put yourself in that room, knowing something or nothing or everything of the Bible. And you just think to yourself, wow, that is an amazing scene that is recorded for us in the scriptures. And their response in chapter 7 verses 54 through 60 is they then proceeded to take this man and to grab him in a course of actions. They ultimately kill him. They stone him to death. Imagine killing a man like that. Imagine silencing a voice for God like that. Imagine the responsibility behind doing so. And so Stephen became the first martyr of the Christian church, and we'll examine more about his death, Lord willing, next week. But I want to close our time today with just a couple of applications that it required everything that I have said thus far to be able to make. It is fascinating to me that in the midst of a scene of such injustice and false accusation that in the midst of a scene of such raw brutality In violence that the Holy Spirit wanted to make known to us for some reason he wanted to make known to us in the midst of all of it that see Stephen sat with the face of an angel chapter 6 verse 15 that in the midst of this entire scene he was the picture of peace through all of it. And all who sat on the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. And why in the world would the Holy Spirit do that? I think perhaps to remind us of what we can be so prone to lose sight of at these kind of times in life. Today we live in a world And we live in a nation that is increasingly emboldened in its opposition to Christianity and increasingly emboldened in its persecution of Christians, complete with all of their mocking and all of their scorn and all of their false accusation and all of their threats. And the temptation is for us to become The ones who are gnashing our teeth while they sit peacefully instead of it being the other way around. And at such times, it's important to be reminded that we are to stay busy about the Lord's business and His call upon our lives. We are never to compromise God's word and His truth. But in the midst of all of it, we can relax. And why can we relax, and why can we be at peace in the midst of a as traumatic and violent scene as the one we've just been through? Because the truth is on our side. And as someone has said, facts are stubborn things, and they are never more stubborn than when they are God's facts and when they are found in His Word. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my word will not pass away. The future is on our side. Truth can take some time to finally dawn upon people. It can take some time before it begins to do its deep work in a person. It took a long time for this sermon of Stephen to ultimately be something that Saul of Tarsus could no longer live with himself in, in, in ignoring what he had said, but truth ultimately prevailed in his life. But it took time. The future is on our side. And every relationship we have with every other person that we are sharing Christ with and we are living the life of Christ in order to impact and it's important, as the old saying goes, to read every once in a while the last chapter of Revelation to realize that ultimately we do win. Ultimately, God's tr- truth does win out. And we can be at peace because ultimately it's going to prevail. And when you're right, and again, we are never more right than we're on God's, when we're on God's side in any issue or belief, then you can be calm. As Scroggy wrote in his commentary, truth is never hysterical. But what is true on a national level and an international level is also true on a personal level and on an individual level. And when you're being opposed by others for your Christian faith and for your faithfulness to God's Word, complete with all of the mocking and all of the lies and all of the threats and all of the false accusations. And the temptation is for you to become the one who is gnashing your teeth at them while they sit peacefully. Relax. Be at peace. Truth is on your side. And the future belongs to you. And ultimately, truth will win out. And remember, when you are right, And you are never more right than when you are on God's side in any issue or on the basis of any belief that you hold, that you can remain calm. You're on the winning side, and it's important to act like it. Enjoy the peace of being right. Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might find peace. In the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In this passage, Stephen also demonstrates for us, perhaps most powerfully of all, that the two most powerful weapons that a Christian can wield in the face of injustice and false accusation and persecution, the true greatest weapons that we can wield in such an environment is truth and love. When the goal is to reach the heart and the mind and ultimately the will of the person and the world that we are trying to speak to. And he spoke to them the truth. He spoke to them at length the truth. It makes up the entirety of chapter 7 but he also spoke and used the weapon of love. You think to yourself, perhaps, how do I know that he spoke that sermon out of love? I'll tell you how we can know. In verse 60, he prayed out, cried out to the Lord, Lord, do not charge them with this sin as they were killing him. He didn't spit at them. He didn't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He didn't throw a single stone back at them because we are not called to advance Christianity on the basis of the sword or on the basis of reviling or on the basis of violence, but on the basis of truth and love, against which there is no defense in the human heart. They are the only means by which to win a person's heart and their mind, and then ultimately, their will. Because the heart and the mind and the will can never be one with a sword. It can never be one with violence. It can never be one with coercion. Because if you force a person to do something or to believe something against their will, then you always have to keep the pressure on, because you know the moment you don't, they will run. But when a heart and a mind is won by truth and love, then you never have to worry about their perseverance in the faith. You will, you will know that it, they're in their core that that issue has been settled in the deepest place of a person's life, and that is in their will. The most powerful weapons a Christian can wield in the face of persecution Any persecution we face now, individually or corporately, and any persecution that we will yet face in the course of our pilgrimage, whether corporately or whether individually, is truth and love. And it is a very rare Christian who will entrust their fate to these weapons, but such a Christian will never be disappointed having done so. Stephen didn't and neither will we. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord we are humbled by this passage of your scripture. We are humbled by the description of the life and the ministry and the death of our brother Stephen. And Lord we know that you have not allowed his death to go to waste. We know that ultimately Saul of Tarsus is going to become the Apostle Paul against all human odds. And then, Lord, the impact of this passage in your people down through all of the ages and then for us to sit and to read of this violence against his mind, this violence against his heart and against his faith and against his body and then to be able to read of how he faced all of it, Lord, the power of the weapons that he wielded in that environment of that trial, the weapons of truth and of love. And, Lord, I pray and we pray for one another that if there is any other weapon in our hands as your people this morning, In the face of some injustice, in the face of some persecution, some slander, some work, Lord, against us, some act of unfairness, that you would give us the grace right now to open our hands up and to drop those weapons and to see that they will never accomplish what we want them to, much less what you would want to do in and through our lives. And we pray, Lord, for a work of your Holy Spirit because it will take one to do so. That you would cause us to arm ourselves in this season of human history in which you have called us to be your people and to be your witness, Jesus, to arm ourselves always and continually with the most powerful weapons in the world against which no human heart can ever prevail, the weapons of truth and love. As we desire, Lord, not to win an argument, not to win a fight, but as we desire, Lord, to reach all the way into the heart and the minds of people as they both listen to us and watch our lives and into their will by the means of these weapons, so that they might then surrender to you and enter into the life that we enjoy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, that's the one thing you must do in the course of this life, is become a disciple and a follower of Jesus.